whenever I have the chance to sit down and talk with a visual artist who uses another medium, I'm hoping to get some new insight into what I do as a photographer. Because when I move away from thinking about the lens and the camera, it's so much more about seeing and finding some way to translate that vision into something, something more. Warren Keating is a painter who has based his popular overhead series on images he's produced with a digital video camera. The result brings together the perspective of a camera with the nuanced control of light and color that can only happen on canvas. But whether you are a fine art painter or a fine art photographer, I hope that our discussion of the unique way he markets and sells his work will provide you some food for thought when it comes to marketing and selling your own photography. Hey, Warren. Hey, how you doing? It's good to see you again. Good to see you. It's been a while. It's been too long. Yeah. Um, you grew up down south in, in New Orleans. Tell me about growing up. Were you surrounded by things artistic by down there? How did you first get introduced to this idea of being creative? Were you just a kid who used to draw? Or what, what, what's, what's your story? Yeah, I was, I was definitely... Well, my story is I was definitely a kid that drew at a very early age and then, you know, never gave it up. I just kept going further and further. In terms of my environment supporting that, I have to say where I grew up, I felt a, a little bit alien in terms of being a creative person in a place that wasn't as nurturing for creative people as you might think as a, as a visitor. But my parents were very supportive of what they saw me doing. So they sent me to the you know, I think when I was in third grade, they sent me to summer camp at the Museum of Art so mm -hmm. I could, because they, my mom made a comment that when I was six or seven, I drew a, like a pen and ink of a guy at his mailbox down the road from his house and it had expression. That was her big sort of thing she noticed about me as a kid having yeah. talent as an artist. So I, like I said, a lot of kids gave up drawing. I just kept exploring it further. My parents are very supportive in that regard. As I was a teenager, um, I had a debilitating sort of congenital uh, thing, and I couldn't walk for several years. And so I took a lot of art classes, really relied on hmm. that to get me through it. So that's when I really, you know, got to the point of no return where I'm an artist, and that's just the way my life is going. Did you find because of your illness that you were, you, you were isolating and that the drawing was an outlet for you? Or were you still sort of socially interacting with a lot of the kids and... No, I was not socially interacting with other kids. You know, this is from the ages of 12 to 15, so it was pretty, you know, socially dependent time. That's why I'm sort of antisocial today, because I didn't learn a lot. <laughs> I missed some of the classes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it was, you know, I went through a lot. I explored a lot of things. I mean, I had, like, little model car sets. I built dioramas, and everything sort of ran its course. Television was the first thing to go. You yeah. know, when you're alone for that long a time, I, after a couple of weeks, couple of months, I didn't really want other kids coming around just to visit me as a charity case. Yeah. So I, you know, got more and more introverted and introspective and delved into art. I mean, that became out there was a, a guy. It wasn't the Bob Ross that everybody talks about today, but there was a German guy who had a really for amateurs. I'm trying not to say anything negative. 
be it a certain technique, if you know what I mean, to make these landscapes with snow on the mountain, trees in the foreground, a lake running through it. And I started watching that television show and copying mm-hmm. him. Even though I had okay. been drawing for many, many years, that was the first time I picked up oil paint. I think that was at, you know, 12 or 13 or something. And then my mom arranged for me to take it from a local instructor at some point. Like I said, they were very nurturing in that regard. So yeah, after I got well, I did, you know, I acted like any normal teenager. I stayed out too late and, uh, you know, drove around and whatnot. Uh, but I was already past the point of no return. I mean, I already knew I was an artist and I had de- de- developed this sort of dependency, really, on it. Mm. So it took me many years to do it as a, for a living. I mean, I spent decades, sort of, I think, decades, oh. You know, having another job in the creative field and doing art in the garage or in whatever, the extra room, whatever. I always had a studio, but I didn't start making a living at it until five or six years ago. Did, did it take you a while for you to not so much get serious about it, but to value it enough that you felt like, I want to do this as more than a hobby. I want to put it out there and find whether there's an audience for it. Well, um... I don't know if this exactly answers your question, but I had been very visible as a teenager. I mean, I had done a lot of painting. You know, I eventually moved on to some pretty decent painting, you know, away from the television show and onto my own subject matter. I did a lot of figurative work that people couldn't believe. Oh, he can, that kid, yeah. you know, there's something when you're a child artist, you have sort of an advantage because people mm-hmm. are amazed if you can make anything that's realistic. So I was very visible, and I had sort of a bad experience. I don't want to get into it too much, but I had a, I was on this scholarship deal, and I was sort of a shoe-in, and I got ripped off, sort of. You know, my entry was was uh, lost temporarily, a whole big deal. So mm-hmm. I had to rearrange my college plans, eventually made out to the West Coast like originally planned, but I was delayed. So I think I had some issues with, you know, that for a while. I just made my art in private, and I could sell myself as anything, you know, a photographer, an art director, I could easily make money of that. But as a fine artist, it was just difficult for me to see it, really, until the Internet. I think it's the anonymity of the Internet that allowed me to put my art out there and see, you know, it was less oh, of a risk. I mean, I had showed in the 90s, I had, this thing, I had uh, done some exhibiting in Mexico, you know, fairly successfully, but didn't make, didn't sell enough, really, to make a living at it. It wasn't until the Internet. Until, uh, you know, like five or six years ago, I really started using the Internet and believing that this was a way to get to uh, living, you know, not just move a few things and as a hobby. What made you sort of think that the Internet would be the outlet? Were you seeing other people doing it? And that sort of gave you an idea that. Yes. Might- yes. I had definitely read a couple of news stories. I st- sort of, I call it stalking. I stalked some people on eBay. I looked at eBay because I had, I had helped my dad sell a couple cars on it. Mm-hmm. And it made me realize that he had some classic cars, 56 Ford, and then he bought and sold a 64 T-Bird. So it's a pretty high dollar. I think the T-Bird went for 20 or 21,000. Yeah. So when I realized people would spend that kind of money on eBay, I started looking around and see what other artists were doing. And of course, it's a crazy chaotic wild west of good and bad art but i did stalk a couple of people that were making some serious money and that really showed me that was possible hmm. let's talk a bit about your your art we're in your studio now we got a lot of different paintings uh that are up there i thought that um one of the th- well, i think one of the series that i've always liked is the series sort of overhead series which are based on photographs and i think it started 
if if I remember correctly, you were on vacation with your wife in Paris, and you were shooting from the balcony downward as people were passing by. And it's a really interesting series, not just because it's based on on a photograph, but not only the perspective, but sort of the graphic sensibility that you bring to what is a very common occurrence, people walking down the street, yet you're able to use the lines of their bodies and the varying colors that they're in the frame to make it really visually arresting. And I think it's been one of the more popular series that you've produced, if I'm not correct, but you can, you can tell me. Yeah, well, thank you very much for saying that. Very nice and well put description of my work that hopefully I can borrow. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it is a convergence of things. It's not just the internet. You know, it's not just the internet kind of maturing and me maturing, but yeah, the, the, this is, I had painted different subject matter that was really hard for people to put on the wall. Uh-huh. Um, my first solo show was in 95 and it was this sort of drippy, dirty paintings of women in bathing suits in front of smokestacks and oil platforms. It was kind of an environmental statement. I got uh, some good press, and I think, you know, they're good technically and, and, and had good form, but it was really hard for people to buy those mm-hmm. and put them on their wall. I think these have more of a universal appeal, but at the same time, it's a unique thing that no other artist kind of does. I mean, there's, there, there's, I try, when people ask me to explain it, I try to, you know, there's two parts. There's the form, and then there's the philosophy. You know, you kind of touched on both. You know, the form is I've, yeah, I've been trying to make a, a realistic painting that is also abstract. That's also, you know, it's not just an old-fashioned kind of pre-impressionist idea, but it, uh, you know, addresses all the stuff of the 20th century, mm-hmm. you know. So it's, I, by, you know, using this viewpoint, by foreshortening the figure and whatnot, you know, it becomes sort of an abstract shape that much easier to make it, you know, more of a modern kind of designed, like pictorial, you know, modernism idea. The other thing about my form is I'm always trying to depict motion. You know, I mean, I've always, there's been a certain amount of motion in every, even when I paint a landscape, I try to put some motion into Mm -hmm. it. You know, I work with an expressive kind of directional mark if you were to get technical. Um, So again, the walking person, there's, there's some sort of, uh, we call it um, anomalies and glitches that happen with the digital video that, that I can interpret and paint, you know, so you've got this sort of contrast between these diverse elements. Um, but the dominant thing that's holding together is it's motion. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a motion painting, you know, if, if it were in the fifties, they call it, you know, like a yeah. abstract expressionist kind of thing, but it's not abstract. Um, and then on the philosophical to, to go to the second part, you know, I, the thing that I have a problem with that come walks, so obviously I, I really appreciate walking, but you really said it in your synopsis. Um, all of the work I've, I've done, landscape, figurative, whatever, I'm always trying to, to find something in the simple, you know, and expand it and, and, and sort of bring people to appreciate a moment in time mm-hmm. that they wouldn't normally appreciate. And I have a lot of collectors, and 90% of them, I think if, if, they, if, I could, if they hear this, I'd probably send them an email so they'll listen. There's a couple of them that'll know I'm talking to them. 90% of my collectors understand, you know, kind of the idea and the motion and, and then I'm creating a new form with paint, but it's yeah. an old, you know, it's traditional painting, but it's mixed with, you know, it's a convergence of things and it's, but there are a few of my collectors that understand what I'm really talking about is that 
moment, you know, in time yeah. that seems so simple and so meaningless, but is so powerful and, you know, kind of, um, wonder filled, you know, like it, mm-hmm. there's all this information. If you look into it, there's so much you can tell about this person. You can't even see their face, you know, you know, you're right on point with that. That's, that's, that's probably one of the things that I like about it. I think it's very analogous to, to making photographs. You know the still photograph because all those qualities that you're you're looking at the the the, the telling gesture those those revealing little details in terms of the body language the clothing and then the, within the context of the space you know and, yeah. and what's interesting is that this is obviously an urban setting but we're not seeing the buildings the street but in the small details that you include particularly the lines of the street or the, the color of the curb, you're, you're, you're doing that. And I think that that's really kind of interesting in, in how sort of minimalist, minimalist in a way it is, but how full of, of content and information that there is there. You know what it does is, is that it, it makes people ask, what's the story? It forces the viewer to fill in the blanks in their mind right. to, uh, what do you call it? Oh, it captures the imagination, you know, because you look at the image and you start to create a story in your head about the person. And that that's sort of, in a, in a plain sense, you're capturing the imagination. You're taking someone's imagination and you're making yeah. it go to work. You know, you're making them uh, interpret your work and draw conclusions. And, you know, as much as I'm very pro... I'm, I'm on the pro side of artists should supply as much information about their work, about their philosophy as they can. Yeah. Because people that love your art want to know about you. They want to know about how you work and they sure as heck need some reasoning to spend thousands of dollars. Right. <laughs> and that helps, but it has to be done in such a way. So it doesn't ruin that experience when someone, right, when yeah. a viewer approaches your art and can create a story. I can't find the words. It's like uh, open, you know, create makes them create interpretations. Or you know, I'm, I'm very happy that a photographer like you, that's you know so accomplished, and you know I love your work at, at big time. I don't want to go off on that too much because has that kind of comment to make about my work because I really feel like it's does sort of address issues that photographs, fine art photographs address, and mm-hmm. I want I would love to be lumped in with photographers. You know what I mean? I would love, um, there's a thing called paintography, yeah, uh-huh. which is paintings that use uh, photographic elements. You know, a lot of times like a painting, there's an artist that does motion blur when a bad camera, mm-hmm. you know, is trying to take a night photo, right? Yeah. Great paintings around that idea. So they're using a photographic element. I feel like I use, you know, digital video artifacts. So it's a photographic element to create my marks. And so there are photographers that also use painterly elements, whether it's the way they compose the work or they process it. You know, there are a lot of photographers that really process their photos into almost an impressionist painting type look, right? Yeah. Yeah, And that's one of the interesting choices that you make here is to include the pixelization that you're getting from the, from the video camera in the photographs. Because I know there are a lot of people who, who base paintings on photographs. But to the extent that you're including that, you're sort of taking that sort of hybrid that you're creating to another step. Did it start off that way? Or how, how did you come to f- figure out that this is something that you wanted to add and make part of the, of the work? That's a great question. 
Because when I first started painting people from overhead, I guess in 2000, 2001, from that first trip to Paris, I made smooth contours. It was more of a curvilinear type drawing. I mean, it's still pretty realistic overhead, yeah. but I used curvilinear lines to depict these foreshortened people. You know, I didn't make it, I didn't use the pixelation. I ignored that and sort mm -hmm. of filled the blanks in with my mind and created a smoother, more realistic image. And then eventually something happened. I was, you know, it was a late night and I let, <laughs> let go. And I had a moment where, you know, things came together and I went, well, let me see what happens if I just render it what I'm seeing, you know, if I just make yeah. it, leave it be what it is, instead of trying to hide the fact that I'm using these really bad captures, because right. they have to be bad to work out this way. Okay. Now I actually have to focus, like I have new equipment and I have to sort of use the worst set. I have to really work hard to get this pixelation because I tend to do it too smoothly. But that's another story. But yeah, just one night I said, what if, and... You know, I could feel it once I made that painting. I went, okay, I need to pursue this. And now I'm really upset. You know, it's really becomes the size of the pixel to the side. I'm really getting into mm. the, you know, there's certain things where it really works. And then there are other ones that don't, doesn't work as well. And the market's too small to the relationship of the canvas. So I'm really, it's become this real obsession. It's a rectilinear mark. It's a hard edge rectilinear mark creating a blur, you know. So it's really... It's an anomaly it, I'm really obsessed it's, with. It's now. really interesting because I think so many people, whether they're painters or photographers, I think they're always thinking about striving for perfection. And I think uh, this work and a lot of other work that I think in terms of photographers, sometimes it's the imperfection. It's the flaw that brings Definitely. A, a marvelous sense of vulnerability, humanity to the work. Because some of the most pristine stuff just leaves you cold. Yeah, it capture again the flaws capture the imagination. You know, once you got a flaw, then you the viewer can think about, you know, how they get the flaw, how do you fix the flaw? Yeah. How does it give the image character in contrast to the rest of the image which is unflawed, you know, which is not flawed. I mean, it starts to create yeah, perfection. I've never pursued perfection, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I was in a, a show in December, November of last year. It was a competition. It was a California Open. And uh, one of the jurors made a comment. And there were 50 paintings or, you know, and photographs and whatnot, a couple of sculptures. So it was a pretty big amount, large body of work. And one of the jurors, they made a speech. Each one made a speech about uh, their intentions and why they came up with these this selection and then they had uh, you know I got honorable mention there were about six or seven oh no there were four first second third and honorable mention mm -hmm. artists that won things and whatnot so they explained their reasoning and she said my painting was the most expressive in the show most expressive work in the show and that mm -hmm. was a huge compliment to me because I am trying to make an expressive drippy motion-filled mark without it being messy and ugly. Yeah. You know, they used to, when I was sort of more naive and less developed as an artist, it was sort of messy and not, I don't know, ugly. It's a hard term because it's, it's individual preference to make something ugly, but I don't know if you know what I'm, but this is sort of a ordered, a planned chaos. You know, there's yeah. something more, it all works together more than just slapping the paint on there, even as you know, skillful as one could do it and make it look fresh. You know, you're trying to make every mark look like both 
nonchalant and extremely focused at the same time. You do this kind of painting, you know, it's trying to look like, Oh, I just with complete abandon, just threw those marks on there. But at the same time, they're going to be exactly all in the right place. Yeah. So oftentimes I make a mark and it's too stale or I missed it. And I got to reiterate that until it has a fresh Mm -hmm. instant look. When you're coming into the studio here to paint, I'm always curious about people's sort of, not so much their, what's, what's your process, but for me, my work is so caught up with how I'm feeling, my the state of my head. Mm-hmm. And sometimes photography allows me to sort of get into a, a zone where I'm relatively calm as compared to the rest of my, <laughs> rest of my <laughs> existence. Yeah, but, but it's sometimes very difficult to get into there because life and all that it entails can get in the way. It's wonderful that you have this sort of space here in the back for yourself that you can sort of separate that. But how much of what you do in here is tied up into, I don't know, it's not necessarily therapy. I know it can be therapeutic to some extent. But but I'm wondering how doing the work serves you beyond the act of just having the desire to be creative. I, I, I see what you're saying, and I've been doing this for a really long time, yeah. and I probably could have answered that question better like 10 years ago or 15 years ago. It's not so much therapy now. It's more like, you know, not to, you know, uh, make my put myself on a pedestal, but it's more like a scientist trying to put together a formula or a cure or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just in this pursuit now. I don't want to be negative because I'm a very positive person, but you look at the finished work and you go, I just didn't quite make it. Okay. You know, some more than others and those end up getting destroyed, but you're always just right. It's just right there, right beyond your grasp. Thankfully though, because it's dragging you forward. It's, you know, it's the carrot that's, you know, moving you along in your aesthetic and making you evolve. And, you know, and then also I'm a, I'm a very hardcore, very simple businessman about making art and selling art. Yeah. When someone buys a painting of a blue umbrella, chances are I'm going to make another painting of a blue umbrella. And I don't have a problem with that. I love when people connect with my art. And, you know, I do motifs. I have motifs that I repeat. And, you know, if it's the painting is not successful, it doesn't get sold. But if it is, you know, and, and it's, you know, that's the magic of making art. You can just completely ruin something and that's it it's yeah. it's gone and then other times you can do the same painting that you did two years ago and it's brilliant now mm-hmm. something happened when do you take your risks like you said you know there's there's certain things certain pieces of work that appeal to your clients and there's certain experimentation that you may play around with with the painting but i think there comes a point for any creative person where they feel like I need to be doing something different, that I need to be taking a greater risk. I need to explore something that makes me maybe a little nervous about taking a dive in there because I'm not sure what the outcome is. You know, that doesn't happen all the time, but it happens periodically. Has that happened to you sort of recently, and how did you sort of negotiate that? Luckily, my philosophy has been for a long time that the work is not the, you know, is inconsequential. That's, that makes it easier to sell, really, in a weird way. Even though I value my work, like, I have pretty high value on my work compared to most artists that sell their work online. I mean, I tend to be in the upper scale. But at the same time, my meaning, you know, what quantifies me, what gives me quality as a person, sorry, 
is, you know, the, the, the process I developed in the end of the, my life, you know what I mean? The, mm-hmm. the body, you know, it's not the individual piece is inconsequential. So that makes it easier to, to sort of what you're to dissipate some of the pressure. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I understand where you're coming from. I mean, I usually do one painting a week, you know, if I'm lucky, usually I, I stick to that. Occasionally I'll do two. So it becomes pretty important. You're like, this is the one, you know, what's the subject matter going to be? What's the size going to be? Don't screw up. Yeah. This is your one for the week. At least a couple of times a week, I'm sitting in the studio and I'm like, oh, should I be trying to do sculpture? I mean, why do I, have I never done, you know, any real 3D work? You know what I mean? Yeah. Should I be trying to interpret this uh, idea and this mark and this video into some sort of three-dimensional thing? Why haven't I done that? You know, and then I go make a painting and the, and the marks themselves say, oh, there's so much you haven't explored here. Yeah. There's so much more. To, it's the, you thought it was a, a pool that was, you know, 50 feet deep and you're at foot 48 and you're saying, why I should experiment and go to another pool. And then all of a sudden you hit through a false bottom and now there's a thousand feet. You know, I, I, I throw paintings away, you know, I destroy paintings if they're bad, which helps. And then it makes room for more work. I have enough inventory I don't sell my paintings for, you know, $20,000. I sell my paintings for 1000 2000 You know, now I've just, I just sold one for 6000 last week. It was the highest I've ever sold one for. So I have to create a certain amount of work every year mm-hmm. to make a living. So it is important. I guess for a photographer, I guess the difference would be, and I'm trying to, like, I'm not trying to analyze you and say, why is he asking this question? But I guess you have only so many moments. Like, you go out to shoot a photograph, and there's that moment, right? And mm-hmm. then it's gone. You know, I could stay up all night and make two or three paintings if the first one screws up. You know, there's sort of an endless supply. Yeah, I think... I'm making something from scratch. I'm completely independent of pretty much everything. I just need to have paint canvas and, you know... Yeah, I think it may make a little more sense because what I'm coming from is that when I go out and I go out and shoot, there are certain things that I know I can capture and I can capture them in a certain way and I can make a good photograph. And so I can go out there and I can go out there and I go, if I turn the camera on this and I expose it in this way and I have it in this kind of like, I can make a good photograph. But when I come back and I look at those photographs and I look at my computer, I go, I've taken those pictures before. I've taken those pictures a hundred times and I've done them, you know, just right. as well as I did it today. And sometimes it's like, do I really want to take the time that I have to go out and shoot for these two or three hours on this day? and make pictures I've made before. Getting myself to the point where I really push myself and say, I am not going to allow myself to make a photograph that I've made before. And really kind of go, I'm going to force myself to challenge myself to look and see differently and not just fall back on that all too familiar. Mm. So, you know, and, I, and I, I'm just kind of curious how in terms of painting that is, because for photography, it's a fraction of a second. But right. with painting, you're you're dedicating yeah, hours yeah. to it at a time. So it's for me, it's trying to figure out how that's analogous to what you're doing with with oils and canvas. Definitely with painting, it that's today. If I start painting first thing in the morning, you're like, okay, that's what's happening today, and then probably half of tomorrow. You know, I paint wet and wet, so it's a day and mm-hmm. a half commitment. And then if it doesn't happen in that day and a half, then it ain't gonna happen. That painting's gonna get you know cut up and. New new canvas will get stretched on that front, on that stretcher bar. You know, there's so much I can manipulate in the painting. It, you know, I could paint the same subject matter, 
and I could change the contrast or I could, you know, uh, emphasize the contours over the shapes. I mean, there's mm -hmm. so many things. I was just thinking yesterday, well, what if they were all white? You know, I, mean, I was just thinking, you know, what if I didn't, what if I just made it like cement, you know, just subtly just put the cracks or, you know, I mean, there are thoughts that cross my head and then that. But there's so much in the minutiae I can explore. It's hard to have mm. that same idea like I'm running out. I keep thinking that. Well, when should I change? I actually have some new reference, a completely different kind of photographic idea that I started a couple of years ago with motion and photography, video stills that I can use as reference to make a new series. Completely different than this. Completely different. I just haven't gotten to it because there's just so much. Yeah. So it's sitting in the drawer when I'm running out. I guess I stay one idea in the queue. Okay. So it gives me security. It's like one blank canvas. There's always a blank canvas ready to go right. when I'm working on a new one. So in case I screw up, it, it makes it less important. Mm. You know, there's yeah. another blank canvas right there. So if this one goes awry. I got it. But yeah, I mean, I, feel, I see some stuff I like. Yeah, I look at this piece over here and I'm like, I didn't get into that liquid amorphic action space for, for lack of a better term. No one's going to understand what that means. But there's something that happens with a painting when the surface, it comes to life and then the marks kind of go in almost like it's two or three inches thick and it's not, but they, you know, and you either get to that point and it's, you finish it and it came together and it sings, or you get to that point and it's gotten too thick or you never get to that point, Yeah. you know? And uh, I mean, I see the work. If it still holds together, if you can't remove any of it, you know, if, if you remove a mark and it suffers, then it's pretty much there. So okay. I keep it. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some stuff is just not good enough and it has to be destroyed. But you mentioned earlier you, you, you starting to market your work using eBay. And I, let's discuss that whole progress to, you know, starting on eBay to, to now, especially in terms of finding an audience for your work online is... is how did that sort of come about? Because that's a dawning process is, is in terms of finding an audience or finding an audience that gets gets what you're doing enough to the point where they want to invest in it. Well, luckily, online, that's, that's the big difference is the audience finds you. Okay. That's why artists, that's why musicians, you know, and visual artists and whoever, whatever other profession in the future, it's given them an equal footing. It's revolutionized their industries because they don't have to be a Coke or, you know, a target to have hundreds of thousands of people looking mm -hmm. at their online ads. You know, the individual has almost as much power because of random search. Yeah. You know, the audience finds you. You have to, not to get technical, but you have to title, describe, and keyword everything really well mm -hmm. to have that equal footing with Target or Coke or whoever, you know, Thomas Kincaid or I don't know who, Damien Hurst. So, you, you, it's revolution, the, the, all the rules of, being an artist and getting the gallery show and, you know, the gallery bringing you along. Mm -hmm. They've changed a lot, you know, exhibiting in brick and mortars, you know, very difficult in, in these times. And it's almost a waste of time for me. You yeah. know, it's not completely. And maybe when I'm at a much higher level and I'm in the biggest Gagosian or, or one of those level of galleries, it'll be a different story. But the mid-level to... To lower upper level, I mean, those people are really having a hard time selling original art through their brick and mortar galleries. 
online, there's a perceived sense of value that people, even if it's the same price, they think mm. it's cheaper because it's online. You know, it's like free shipping. It's irrational. You got to give away free shipping because people don't want to think. And they think it's cheaper. Even if you add the shipping plus $10 into the price, mm -hmm. they will still get it because it has free shipping. So all the rules are different now. So I feel like for artists, they're going to have the same kind of revolution in their industry that the music musicians, you know, you hear about musicians every day that were unheard of, unsigned. I don't even know if that's a term anymore. Things yeah. have changed so much. And they put out an MP3 and it became viral and they made, you know, 300 grand on 99 cents MP3s the first year. And now they're getting written about and they're on their way. So people were, were finding your work because they were doing searches on, on what? I mean, it's, well, this is what's Okay. It's not just, obviously there's help when you're on eBay or, yeah. you know, eBay has a lot of power. You know, if you search for figurative art or figurative painting or oil painting of people, my eBay listings are going to get priority on Google or Yahoo, even though they're not supposed to, over mm -hmm. an individual who doesn't, you know, have that big corporate dollars. You right. know. And, the, and the fascinating thing about what you asked, and I don't know if this answers the question, but I've also sold landscapes. In fact, I started selling landscapes online because I thought they were more sort of over the couch and easier to sell. Yeah. They get a much lower dollar Okay, so it's a lot of work for less money. And for a year and a half, my first year and a half on eBay, I only sold landscapes. I kept my figurative work in brick and mortar galleries because I felt like it was a conflict and there's a lot of bad stuff about, oh, artists, you can't sell your work online yeah. and be in a gallery. And that's all changing now because it's just, it has to. And it's got no <laughs> choice. It's the world changing. But in 2008, I had a brick and mortar show, solo show downtown. It was very well attended. I got tons of press. I advertised in the art magazines. I mean, this was it. I don't even want to tell you how bad the sales were. Okay. I just don't even want to get into it. Meanwhile, I'm going home and, you know, selling paintings on eBay, little landscapes and whatnot. This is my first year into selling online. So in a, in sort of a, a revenge move on myself, I guess I, Listed all the figurative paintings that I've been keeping off the internet on eBay. I was like, forget about it. I'm just, I don't care what galleries think. I'm just putting all my figurative work online. Yeah. And I started selling them for very uh, decent money because they have much less competition. Hmm. Mm. There's a million people selling landscapes online, but there are very few people selling, you know, pixel impressionism, figurative paintings, if you would. And people that are searching and looking for art in Luxembourg and in, you know, Hawaii and, you know, down the street yeah. that are sophisticated enough to know the terms and find my art tend to also have the money and the appreciation of art to put down the love, to send me the love and buy yeah. the piece. So I've, you know, have collectors all over the world. I can never... It would take me a long time, a lot of progress, to say that if I were just showing in brick-and-mortar galleries. You know, I mean, if I counted Mexico, I sold a lot of paintings in Mexico. Does that make me international? Maybe it does. <laughs> but now I've sold paintings all over the world. I mean, there are very few countries, even China, which is very difficult to mm -hmm. get the paintings in. Sold a couple of pieces in China. And the lesson has been, go with your individuality. Don't try to tailor to the market. Yeah, I make much more money now than I'm pushing the figurative work and 
you know, selling that, the paintings that, that only I do and that are unique to me and that I believe in and not trying to make paintings that are marketable. I don't make paintings that are marketable. Even when I, I still do a lot of landscapes, but they're more like, that's my therapy, actually. You're asking about therapy? Yeah. When it, this is a very intense kind of work. I mean, I've had a couple of artists walk up to me at different exhibits and go, oh my God, what did you do to yourself? Picking this <laughs> view and this style. Yeah. That's very... So as a release, I'll just whip out a landscape. Oh, you know, yeah. I'll, and then I sell those on eBay for hundreds and, you know, they supplement when I'm, you know, not selling and making a big sale. And, and, and it's probably providing you relationships with people who love your work that you might not ever have the opportunity if they were buying them at the gallery. Oh, there's no question. I mean, I've gone to galleries, brick and mortar galleries my entire career. And, you know, and I've always dabbled in brick and mortar galleries, even when I say I wasn't selling work, you know, yeah. first 15 or 20 years of my of making art, I still would have an occasional show and sell a piece or two. And many times I'd walk up to the gallery, show painting would be in there for 30, 60, 90 days. And I'd come in to pick it up like we're done. You know, you didn't sell it. Yeah. And where's the painting? Oh, I forgot to call you. That painting sold, you know, three weeks ago. Oh, I have your check for you couple from vegas took it and that's it yeah you know not only you just feel like you're catching the dealer you know but you never get the information about the collector and you know every painting well most paintings i do have one gallery that represents me it does not you know i do not have contact with the collectors they protect themselves but they do very well for me and they're that's fine but a lot of the paintings I saw have this direct communication with the collector back and forth. It's, mm -hmm. You know, and they tell me about hanging it up and their wife likes it. And, you know, it's really very nice to have that feedback. That's with any artist or performer, anyone in the arts. They need the audience. Yeah. They need the feedback. You know, it's nice getting it from these people that buy my work online. Um, I think it's of note. I mean, I don't know if you want to include this or not, but people that are interested in what I got to say about particularly about selling art online that a year or two ago I would, you know, get on my soapbox and say, you know, the only way to sell art online is on eBay that all these third party art sites will basically tell you, take your money, but they're really not getting you any more exposure than you can get on your own. Mm -hmm. They have one or 2% of their artists that they sell work for. And those, they lure you into the fold, but yeah. you don't really get much out of it, but that's changing quite a bit. I have two galleries now that represent me that, act like brick and mortar galleries, but they do it online. They have sales staff, they have prestige, they've been doing it for a while. So you can find those out there. You have to find the ones that sell the kind of work you do. Mm -hmm. But there, like I said, there's a revolution, a very quiet revolution happening. You know, one of the galleries took me to an art fair in New York. I mean, they had a brick and mortar stall in this really kind of upscale art fair. So I got my work, you know, in an art fair, that would not, you know, be very difficult for me to hook up with the gallery here and be so such a favorite of theirs. That's the other thing. When you're an artist selling work all the time, like I do, and you walk out in the world and get rejected by all these galleries, it's very easy to just go, whatever. That's a big waste of time anyway. All that work to be in a group show or a solo show to sell one or two paintings? Are you kidding? Mm -hmm. You just sit at home and you know, go to the mailbox. So what are you? What are your fellow artists that you sometimes exhibit in these group shows make out of or have made of what you've been doing? Well, actually, 
got invited a, a while back to do a seminar for a couple of, for a couple of seminars for an art group teaching them. Most artists are pretty blown away and they feel somehow intimidated or they can't do that. Mm. It's just like everything else, you know. It's just like getting into a gallery. You know, I always felt like it's very intimidating, very difficult. I cold called, sent out packages for the last decade, you know, 20, 30 years, if you would, pretty regularly. Yeah. Kept track of the L.A. scene, sent my cover letters and my samples, didn't bother anybody personally, like I wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. did everything right, trying to get the show. And it wasn't until I started selling a bunch of work online that I started showing in brick and mortars. The thing begets, when you walk, when you're selling your work, you got a different attitude. <laughs> <You Yeah. know? laughs> I have this online gallery, uh, you gallery, sold a painting for 6000 uh couple of weeks ago i couldn't believe it i was just i mean i believe it that's awesome um but that is very exciting i mean yeah. the future is very bright you know i think for artists that pursue these avenues that's cool well the last question i always ask is that i ask my guests to suggest another artist whose work that they've long admired or recently discovered and it can be anyone mm. so who would that one person be and why gosh i have a lot of friends now that are artists, which is another thing I didn't have. I ironically enough, when I was not selling any work online and whatnot, I had very little, very few artist friends in real life. Mm -hmm. Now that I sell a lot of work online, I participate in more brick and mortar shows. I have a lot of artist friends, so it's a little hard to choose. All right, I got it. I'm going to say that one of my favorite artists or most no notable artists of the, of the last couple of years that I've been following and interested in is Dwayne Kaiser, who was a big inspiration to me i guess probably five or six years ago got me one of my, the people i stalked and got me really excited about the potential of selling art online and what Dwayne kaiser did is he's the original painting a day guy mm -hmm. so Dwayne kaiser he's the original painting a day guy meaning uh he made one painting a day very small and then he started auctioning it after he got some notoriety for that accidentally got some notoriety put the built a blog around it and somebody, some entity advertised it. And suddenly he had, you know, 80,000 visits, you know, the next day started selling his little works online, did a very brisk business. They would go up to, you know, seven, $800, get like a hundred bids, start at a hundred dollars. Or he used to start them at a dollar and then go up to 800 for all these bids. So that's a lot of love. I mean, that's, but anyway, his work is very good. He works in a traditional medium. It's very realistic oil paintings. I love what he did with his career and how he started this painting a day idea, which is a very artist artist, you know, like mm -hmm. mileage, practice, craft, you know, get studio every day. I mean, that's an artist's credo, but yet it was a very commercial idea in a, in, unintentionally, I think. So tell, tell us uh, where we can find more about you and, and your work. Where are good places to go? Mm. Uh, well, I'm everywhere because I've been seeding the internet for at least five years. So if you Google Warren Keating, you're going to get a whole bunch. But you can go to my website, warrenkeating.com. There are links there to my blog, and which shows my latest work. My sort of best work, my reserved collection, if you would, is on U Gallery. 
just go there. It's U-G-A-L-L-E-R-Y. Type in Warren Keating. But if you go to my website, they, there's a link to my you know online gallery. There's a link to my blog, which gets instant updates whenever I make a piece. I tend to br- I try to bring people in, into the studio as much as possible. I also put uh, videos on YouTube of my process, kind of like time lapse over the shoulder of me creating the paintings. Some of them I have landscapes that I've created. Others, I have video time lapses of creating figurative paintings. But people like that. I get a lot of traffic because I think people like to see that. Yeah. They don't get it's a rare opportunity. And that's at my my idea on YouTube is Keating Art. So it's youtube.com slash Keating Art. If you want to get some entertainment. That sounds good, man. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Barionex. Next on the candid frame, Juan Pons. Being a great photographer doesn't mean you can teach what you know, but photographer Juan Pons certainly can. In his role as a nature and wildlife photographer, a workshop leader, and co-host along with Rick Salmon of the Digital Photo Experience podcast, he is one of those few who can do and teach and do both very well. You know, the advice I give to people is, Concentrate on what you like to do. Don't shoot for other people. Shoot for yourself. Shoot for what you want. What fulfills you? What you like to shoot? Yes, you want to learn and improve your craft and find out how you can improve your own work. But as long as you're fulfilled with what your own work is, what you're doing, you know, who cares what these trolls or what these other people say? For a lot of people, for most people, photography is a is a is about personal fulfillment. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is... The Candid Frame.